Ryan Dean. <laughs> very much for, for, for doing this. Um, did you watch a lot of films when you were growing up? Um, yes. Um, I was a small bit obsessed, I think, with watching films when I was growing up. Um, I don't know where that came from exactly. I think um, I think my dad was always um, a big fan of sort of escapist cinema. Um, he loved like Sergio Leone spaghetti westerns and um, kind of action films. I think mainly, and I think some of that obviously leaked into me. He was always trying to share films that he thought I would love <laughs> even when I was very young. I remember he came back from the States and because he was away a good bit with work and he'd seen a film on the plane and he was quite excited about it. He was telling me, oh, I'd, I'd love it, it'd be brilliant. And um, there was one video library in Cork, I think at the time, <laughs> which we went to and he asked the man, did they have it? And it was Beverly Hills Cop. And I think I must have been about 11. So he realised then that maybe it wasn't, it wasn't quite age appropriate at that point. But um, yeah, I think that definitely had an effect on me. Um, and did you think at that age that it was something you wanted to do? Or did you know it was something you could do? Um, I think it was something... God, you just... Where I grew up and even just growing up in Cork, there wasn't... There wasn't a film industry, there wasn't anybody who made films. There, there was, that was kind of a pie in the sky sort of dream scenario that you could actually make a living. I think the Dizzy Heights back then were probably, you know, just working in RT or, or being a part of that um, sort of world. So I think growing up, I never really saw it as a possible career option. Um, I think when I moved into my teens, yeah, I, I definitely became bit of a cinephile or um, and a bit obsessive about film and I certainly dreamed of the idea of, of creating something from from nothing whether it was writing or, or even possibly directing but I, it was always kind of a something I didn't think was that attainable um, but obviously something I, I, I was very much in love with the idea of if that makes sense. So you you did a BA in computer science? Uh, I started, yeah, so I did computer science and um, for a couple of years and was pretty miserable doing it. Um, some people, I think even as a kid I was always kind of interested in computers um, and maybe I was a bit naive going into computer science realising that most of computer science is writing code um, and if you don't enjoy that then you should be doing something else. Well, I think it was the other aspects of it, kind of computer architecture or... Um, some of the more creative elements in it that I kind of enjoyed well the coding I didn't but I sort of stupidly persevered for a few years when I think I should have jumped ship um, and then when I did jump ship I was just I think I just got very very lucky um, I met a lovely woman called Mary McCarty in the careers office in UCC um, and I went and I had a chat with her and I said I don't know what I'm doing but I'm not doing computer science and at that point my plan was to go I think to the World Cup in Japan and South Korea and that was as far as I was planning ahead <laughs> so it wasn't really a strong career move at the time um, but I went in and I had a lovely chat with Mary and um, she suggested that I do an interest test uh, so I kind of sat down at a computer for I think about an hour and answered I think 200 questions maybe about just about everything that you could ask um, and then at the very end 
kind of goes back through your questions and it said you, you said this but yet you know you said you'd like to write a book but you said that you also wouldn't like to be a teacher we'll say something like that you know things where it's all conflict maybe not so much that way but there was definitely things where I was definitive that this was what I liked and this is what I didn't um, and then it's bad out uh, theatre director which uh, I just started laughing and um, Mary was kind of asking me why that was so funny and I was like well I didn't I've never wanted to be a theatre director but I've always wanted to work in film and I've always wanted to be a film director I've always dreamt that that was something I'd like to do um, and she kind of said well you could do that and that was I think maybe the first time someone had said that to me um, so she was saying do you know what you you've you finished um, first year in um, UCC and computer science is, is also has subjects that are part of the arts program and what you could do is you could maybe look at switching um, from computer science into arts and then maybe we could look at finding a postgrad in film and um, so we kind of sat down and we looked at it and we had a chat about it and I decided that's exactly what I should do um, so uh, I had to go through the academic council or something because I needed to get global exemptions to jump from science to the arts department um, and that worked out fine and then when I went to start first year again, um, I would only have to pay half my fees because I would take my exemptions from computer science and that would cover half my results for first year. So then I just had to pick two subjects um, and I would just have exams in those two. So since I had a bit of time on my hands, I did three. I did history, philosophy and English um, okay. for a couple of months. Um, and then I decided, yeah, I think that philosophy was for me and I was always going to do English. Um, so I kind of let history go and I just concentrated on the other two. Um, and yeah, so then I just did those two subjects all the way through uh, for three years. Um, and I took every single film module you could take in either of them. And there was surprisingly a lot of film modules in both of them, actually. Um, and philosophy, strangely enough, has had quite an impact I think on filmmaking and film theory and stuff like that um, and yeah so I came out the other end of that and I went traveling for a year and then I was planning to apply for some postgrads in the UK and a new one had just started in Galway so I applied for that. Um. So that was in the John Euston School of Film as part of NUIG and they had been running a screenwriting course for a few years and they were just launching a film production and direction course. So I applied for both um, and I was uh, shortlisted and did interviews for both and I was offered both and I did the film production and direction um, <coughs> for the year um, and that sort of copper fastened I think what I already knew that this was the right road for me. Yeah. Um. And in the philosophy, were there, were there particular philosophers that kind of resonated with you or yeah absolutely um god there, there's there's so much in philosophy i mean i suppose lately it very much came to the fore with stuff like the matrix well i suppose that's a good, a good few years ago now but they really explored kind of western philosophy through film and sci-fi which was really interesting at the time um for me one of my favorite um 
one of my favorite philosophers would be Jean-Paul Sartre um, and kind of existentialism and actually that's something that's definitely had an influence on the project I've just started working on at the moment but also some of my other projects as well and I, I think to break that down into its simplest form it's um, that there is kind of no God but that man paints his own portrait by his actions so his actions are sort of brush strokes on his canvas and I think um, Oscar Wilde then took that to um, a sort of more extreme with the portrait of Dorian Gray where he sort of did that physically as well as sort of metaphorically um, and that's something I think I've always really liked the idea of that because for me I struggle to kind of believe in religion it didn't quite make sense to me and then it kind of leaves you with some sort of a void um, and for me that sort of helped fill that void it was it wasn't so much that you were trying to build yourself I suppose you are in a way but you also were doing good for the sake of humanity rather than for the sake of fear of punishment yeah. <laughs> yeah. which I always liked um, so then your first short or was it your first short without words yeah um, how did that come about and, and what was the experience of making it um, I, I suppose <clears throat> well it kind of it started um, when I was away travelling I was over in Australia and one of our kind of friends from college um, he took his own life while we were away and we just I, I just couldn't afford to come back for the funeral so when I did come back there was kind of a strange gap there and everybody else had kind of experienced the grieving process maybe of, of what it was like um, when Breno had died and had gone through it and I sort of felt that I hadn't really been around to contribute to that or to be involved in it and it made me want to do something or say something about it um, and it kind of sparked an idea that I'd like to, to do something positive about about suicide and about um, possibly you know looking for help or, or being helpful to someone in some way um, but I, I didn't really have the skill set to do anything at that point um, and when I went into my interview uh, for the John Newson School of Film, it was something I mentioned, they said, is there anything that you were interested in making? And I said, I'd love to make something about suicide. Um, and then when I, it came to the final year of projects and everybody was pitching for various things, that was something that I pitched. Um, and I was lucky enough to get a chance to make that film. Um, and I got to work with a lovely writer, um, Anya Young, um, on the project. And um, obviously some wonderful actors as well. But the, the short went on to do quite well and, and won a, a big award internationally, um, which was lovely. But the really nice thing with the award was that um, I think over 400,000 people have watched it on YouTube. So I was hoping that in some way maybe it may have been helpful to someone, which was sort of why I made it in the first place. Um, but it was also quite strange because it was going to be premiering in the Cork Film Festival and none of my friends had seen it. So I sort of mentioned to one or two of them what I was doing and then 
I sent down a copy of the film for them to watch because I kind of needed their approval beforehand. Um, and I wasn't there at the time, but apparently, yeah, it was a, it was a quite emotive, um, but good experience for everybody, and and they were happy to kind of, yeah, to give it their sort of blessing. And then it did premiere in the Cork Film Festival, uh, and I, I think nearly everybody, all of our friends, were there for it. Um, and it was actually it was it was quite emotional even for me, and I had seen it quite a few times, but uh, I even watched it again there recently, and it still it still certainly has some sort of an impact. Um, and I suppose considering it's very short, it's only seven or eight minutes or something, it does generate quite a bit of emotion, um, and hopefully it maybe helped some people somewhere. Would be the would be the hope behind it anyway. Um. And like you say, it won an award at Cannes, didn't it? Um, yeah, so Spike Lee um, started a film festival with, with this um, company called Babelgum, which were trying to create a new um, sort of online portal. Um, I think they may have been slightly ahead of their time. But yeah, so the, the awards ceremony and everything was in Cannes during the Cannes Film Festival. So... Um, it was a strange process because there was obviously thousands of films submitted and then uh, there was a voting system so I ended up <laughs> having to torment a number of my friends to vote um, and that got you into the top I think if you're in the top 10 that put you through then um, and then a panel picked three from the 10 so I got to the 10 and then that was cut down to three and then Spike Lee watched the three um, in each of the sections and he kind of picked his winners. Um, and then we were flown out to Cannes for the film festival and we got to hang out for a few days and um, just meet some of the people over there. And we had kind of a swanky award ceremony and I got to hang out with Spike Lee for a bit. So that was really nice. He had some lovely words to say about the film. Um, he was just, he was a very kind of, Intense but very giving and a uh, lovely man. Um, and was it like so early on? Was that kind of uh, vote of confidence just hugely helpful in terms of you? In... Yeah, no, I, I, it, was, it was. I think I knew that I made something special mm-hmm. by the time even we'd finished, you know, we were finishing the edit. Um, but I naively didn't really know much about festivals and the college really didn't know either. They weren't that helpful because they, it was the first year of the course, so they, like, they weren't sure how the, fe- the festival run worked other than, you know, you submitted to Galway and you submitted to Cork. But other than that, you know, the, internationally, they didn't really know, they weren't very helpful or supportive and I didn't really know what I was doing so I was kind of winging it um, so I was lucky that I landed on this festival and it ended up winning at it but because it then became available online that meant it couldn't go to any other festivals which in hindsight um, I probably would have learned more if I'd, if I'd been in more festivals at that point but to win an award was amazing and I kind of in my head presumed that this would be the start of you know more things I would be making over the next few years um, and it wasn't really um, I thought it would open doors and things so I, I applied for funding with Phil Mason with 
the film board. Um, actually, it was quite frustrating because that was the first year the film board had a theme for their shorts the year after I won the award uh, for Without Words. And they picked the one thing I don't particularly have a big grow for, which is musicals. So um, I suddenly had the, the kind of best funding opportunity available to me was to make films I didn't particularly like. So I actually came up with a good idea, which was kind of like an anti-musical. And a friend of mine who's um, a very good uh, singer-songwriter, we kind of sat down and looked at it musically as well. And we kind of came up with, I thought it was quite original idea, um, where it was about, I think it was about um, this sort of, Dublin gangster scumbag type character who wakes up in the west of Ireland in a musical um, and he's trying to escape and isn't really um, interacting with everybody else but he's being stalked by someone and the whole idea is at the end that that he's actually died and he's gone to hell and this is his hell um, but I think where I naively probably went wrong on that as well there was a lot of naivety going on is um we had kind of rewritten the words to lots of different musicals and kind of had nods to different ones where I'm pretty sure we wouldn't have had the rights, <laughs> which is maybe where that application fell down. Um, and I had another application with another girl who was in the Houston with me as well um, that I put in that one as well. Um, it was a more traditional um, kind of project, but... It took a long time for the film board to come back and say that that we hadn't been shortlisted. Um, and then after that, I, I think I just kept applying for stuff. But that was all to the time I started uh, wondering how I was going to make a living. And I set up uh, TW Films and started doing corporate work. Um, it was weird, it kind of landed on my lap. Kind of a friend of a friend asked me would I be able to make a video for Pfizer in Dublin. And I ended up making... Um, they were looking to sell a plant in Dunleary and they were looking for kind of a prospectus video to help sell the plant. Um, so I worked quite closely with Pfizer and uh, learned a lot about what they do and <laughs> about biochemistry. Uh, and we made, and I made quite, quite an impressive video, I thought anyway at the time. And they ended up, they did end up using the video to sell the plant. Um, I was trying to see if I could get a percentage out of them afterwards because I think it was it was hundreds of millions, um, but that kind of led me down the road then of looking and doing more corporate work, which is what I kind of used to to survive, uh, and I obviously I kept applying for funding and I think, um, I think I've been shortlisted for projects with Filmbase six times, um, and last year I was lucky enough to finally get funded, um, but certainly yeah, after without words I did think doors the, the gates would open and yeah. people would be handing me money to make things but at the same time it's lovely that that particular film given what you wanted to do yeah. with it is seen by such a wide scope of people absolutely yeah um, so then Volkswagen Joe was the next yeah so there was a pretty big jump there of about f maybe three or four years um, and I actually did um Myself and Eamon, who, who's in TW Films with me as well, um, we did um, a documentary for Satanta. That was our, we did a TV doc, so we produced it together. 
um, and I directed it and then Eamon edited it. And that actually turned out really well as well. So at that point, I was like starting to examine maybe I should look at doing more documentary stuff possibly for TV. Um, and the corporate things were going quite well. And I remember sitting down with my sister and kind of, I don't know, voicing my frustrations that I didn't seem to be progressing as well as I had hoped since maybe even back to without words. I, I hadn't shot any drama in four years, four and a bit years. And uh, we kind of chatted about it. She said, but you're trying to do everything. You're, you're completely schizophrenic because you're trying to apply for funding as a director you're trying to write projects for drama you're trying to apply for funding for tv documentaries you're trying to get corporate work you're trying to find clients you're trying to deal with clients you're trying to organize invoices you're trying to pay your tax and that and, and i realized yeah i'm actually it makes perfect sense that i'm not progressing the way i'd hoped because i was trying to do way too much at the time um, and yeah, around that time, this project, Volkswagen Joe, kind of came onto our radar. I think Eamon spotted it somewhere. Um, it was advertised that they had funding and that they were looking to adapt a play. And I was like, having been turned down for funding so many times over the previous couple of years, I was like, they have the funding. So if I could just get this gig, you know, um, that will help me get over the line. Um, and I think it was before Christmas... I contacted the Bell Turbot Drama Society, who were the people who were, who were looking to have a play adapted and turned into a film. And they had sent out the play, and I just loved the play. I just fell in love with the play and the character straight away. And I was adamant that no matter who I had to kill, I was going to get this project. And what, what was it you loved about the play? Um, God, uh, thinking back, um, I sub- a couple of things. Um, the characters in it were wonderful and beautifully written by um, Brendan McCann. He's a, he's a fantastic playwright from Cavan. Um, everybody was very real and their, the dialogue in it was beautiful. Everything had a very strong Cavan feel. Um, and it was very much of the time. It was set in, in around the early 80s. Um, and it dealt with the troubles and it dealt with sectarianism and... It was just a kind of a different view, I think, of the conflict that I hadn't really come across before. And it was about someone in the middle who had friends on both sides and didn't want to be drawn onto a side. Um, and I had had chats with Matthew Roach as well, who was in college with me, about a project. Uh, and we'd looked at a couple of different ones. And then when this one came along, I gave him a ring and I said, how would you feel about taking this on with me? Um, so we had good chats about how we would adapt the play. We'd never adapted anything before. Um, <clears throat> and I put together a pretty comprehensive application as to what exactly I would do um, with every element <laughs> of the story and what scenes we would write and how we would change and how we'd move away from the play. Um, and uh, we stuck that in and we, we, we went up to Cavan and we had an interview. And I think just before Christmas or just during Christmas I got a call to basically say that we'd gotten the gig of the like 80 I think there was 80 applicants had gone for it or 80 teams um, so then myself and Eamon and Matt started working on the project um, and myself and Matt met up with Brendan McCann a couple of times and 
he basically said to us, look, it's, it's going to be your gig. Uh, I'm happy to hand the play over to you. And he said, if you want, though, I can, I can stay involved if you'd like. Um, and we said, we'll definitely keep you. Um, because he obviously had a wealth of information about the subject and the characters and the time. Um, and myself and, and Matt worked very hard on the script through, I think, about 26 or 27 drafts. Um, and um, till we were really happy with it. And then I think around that time as well, Eamon ended up having to step back from the producing role. Um, so Anna O'Malley came in, and that was the first project we worked with with Anna. Um, she had worked on a feature film called Flatlake in Monaghan and was on a couple of people's radars. So I had a chat with her and she seemed great and she came on board um, and then we, we shot in cabin over five days um, which was an amazing experience um, and uh, yeah the rest is kind of history I guess I'm probably mm-hmm. skipping ahead of it no no but and was it just that you kind of felt oh I'm, I'm back where I want to be absolutely um, and one of my friends who I worked with quite a bit um, Burn or Nob um, he had come on board the project as well um, I think he was one he was the camera assistant um, and the downloader but we worked on stuff before but we hadn't done any drama projects and we were a couple of days into the shoot and he just turned to me and he went you're really good at this <laughs> and that was just really nice to know I think at that point as well I had realised that I was good at it to a certain degree and I, I had been away from it for far too long um, and my prep, I had done a huge amount of prep for it so um, I, I did really really enjoy the experience it was it was stressful and it was tough um, but we had such wonderful actors and a wonderful team uh, behind the project and we were shooting in cabin on location in some of these beautiful locations and it was just a really ambitious project and I could feel it like as the week went on that it, it was really coming together and it was going to be something special I think um, I mean when what do you think I'm kind of jumping in but what um, in terms of directing what do you think makes you good at it or what are your strengths or God um, I suppose there's definitely a few different attributes that you you need to have. Um, you need to be pretty open as regards to where ideas come from. And I think whoever sort of, you create an environment where everybody feels that they can contribute, I think is a, is a really important thing. Um, to have a strong visual idea of what it is you want to shoot. Um, and that that represents the story that you're trying to tell I think is probably one of my strongest attributes that I tend to map the visuals very closely around the drama um, and I, I do think about things very visually and then um, I work very well with writers and um, I have a very good relationship with Matt so we, we, we worked very closely on, on the script and, and obviously um, Eamon and Anna as well were, were involved but um, I think you just need a, a good collaborative spirit and you need to be able to answer it 
pretty much any question that anyone asks you when you're about the project. Um, and I think it's just about having more knowledge about your film than anybody else. Um, um, those will all be important things. And then from working with actors, I think it's about being whatever sort of director they need you to be, because I think all actors work slightly differently. Um, and some, you just need to be adaptable, I think. Uh, certainly Stuart was very uh, cerebral with how he approached things. He liked to do a lot of prep himself. Um, so we had a lot of chats beforehand about about the kind of nuts and bolts of his character and the environment and the time. Um, and I was lucky enough to do quite a bit of, uh, what I would say is rehearsals, but probably more prep mm -hmm. with the actors. And we got to play around and try a few things. And um, it was great to figure out problems that I knew I'd need to fix, if that made sense. Like we had, there's one scene in Volkswagen that's massive. Where I think when we were shooting, we were calling it the monster because it's got four characters and it's, it's set in the garage it's got lots of different points of view there's there's action and then two of the characters split off into another part of the garage and it was just a, a tricky scene and I remember when we rehearsed it we actually did a run through of it in the kind of rehearsal process and I remember going yes there's clearly something seriously not working but we, it wasn't that I, I had a plan at the time I just said let's have a look at it and see where it goes and very quickly I realised there was a number of elements I needed to figure out. So it gave me time to figure those out before we ended up on set and me having to fix them. And what were those elements? Well, one of the things was um, that in in the scene there's, maybe a spoiler alert, there's, there's a man pretending to be a journalist and interviewing the lead actor, Volkswagen Joe. Um, Joe and um, there's kind of a menace to it um, and what I figured out pretty quickly was that I needed to keep this journalist who's actually an IRA man who's looking to plant a bomb and Joe away from each other from a purely staging point of view because if they were close enough then there should be a physical confrontation at some point from one of them so I needed to find a way of staging it, so I was always keeping the two characters separated. Um, and in the film, I used the cars and the garage space to keep a car length between them at all times. So, you know, there's no way one of them can make a swing for the other one. Um, and that actually worked really well. And then I was lucky enough as well to, like, uh, it's amazing what you can come up with even in the morning when you're having breakfast or at lunch, if you're if you're sitting with your crew or you're sitting with your actors and you're having chats. And I remember myself and Stuart are having chats about the staging of the scene after that where there is a bomb planted in one of the cars. Excuse me. And I think the way it was written was that that he was working away at a workbench and, and I remember I was chatting about him, we're like, that's madness. There's a bomb in a car in his garage and he's ignoring it. So we came up with the idea of him sitting down facing the car where he was almost keeping an eye on on, on the bomb. Um, and the scene before that, as soon as he realises that there is now something incredibly dangerous in his garage that he doesn't know if he can touch it or not, his first instinct was to get Madge out of the garage. So those are kind of two things that I think just the morning of while chatting, we came up with 
sort of new versions of those scenes and new ways to stage them. So I think that ties into the collaborative thing as well, that if you're too close-minded about how you want to shoot scenes and how you want to stage scenes, you'll just miss out on opportunities to make the film better. Um, and I think that, that goes you know, through every department, whether it's costume or production design or especially working with your, your director of photography, you want somebody who can take your ideas and make them better or you have a nice back and forth where you both push each other to come up with better ideas. Uh, so that, that's a very long answer no, to, no. to, to um, a quite a succinct question. No, um, so kind of in preparation, if you like, with your actors, yeah. um, what sort of questions are you asking or what is the nature of those conversations? Um, is it all to do with... Um, it depends, I suppose, it, it depends on the project we, and depends on the age group of the act. I mean, on Kay Graw, I was working with with uh, Brandon Tyke and Zena, who are all around 12 or younger at the time. So working with them was obviously different to working with, with adults. Um, and I was trying to find points of reference for them um, to help them get into a, a place where they were enjoying it and playing with the subject matter. Um, and they weren't overthinking because mm -hmm. I think when you're that young, if you're trying, uh, if you're using that part of your brain too much, the analytical side, it comes across in performances. Well, I, I, that's one of the things that amazes me about actors is the ability to use those two parts of their brain simultaneously where they're completely engaged on an emotive level and yet they're still hitting marks and working the light and have learned off the lines. And um, I think the more you can get that stuff out of the way and help actors stay in the kind of more creative emotive side of their brain, the better. Um, and to not get too upset if, um, if for the sake of audio, people talk over each other a little bit or if people, you know, miss their mark ever so slightly. Like sometimes you need to give people leeway from a performance point of view even if it means that technically it's not perfect because sometimes those imperfections can be what make things um, what make things work. Uh, but one of the things that we that I, I would always like to do um, in the sort of preparation process, besides sit down and meet, I, I try to meet all the actors kind of separately if I can, depending on how much time and we can have lots of chats, but then bring actors and put them in the room together and we might ad-lib some scenes um, or come up with scenes that aren't in the play are in the film that might happen just before or just after and um, to help them and to help me get into kind of the right headspace uh, for what we're going to shoot and then I do like to do a little bit of staging at that point as well just to get an idea of what works and what doesn't work but generally it's good to not do too much because I think if you over rehearse a scene you end up sort of sucking the life out of it a little bit and I think for the actors it's quite hard because they're probably in some way tied to a rehearsal performance that was really good that they're trying to recreate rather than discovering the scene for the first time and it definitely happened in, in Volkswagen Joe where we had used one of the scenes from the film for the auditions 
and we'd auditioned quite extensively um, and I played around with that scene quite a bit with Matt and Janet uh, and when we went to shoot it on the day it, it didn't work <laughs> because we'd made changes to it late on and I, I think I just overplayed with it and I'd let the actors spend too much time working on it as well and everybody was very much in their own head far too much I think um, so I think we, we sort of took a break for a minute and we stepped away from it and I actually came across something another director said I'm not sure who it was but he said a really good idea when that happens is to you know, just get a ball and just get the two actors and get them off the set and get them just throwing the ball to one another just to get out of the headspace that they've gotten themselves into and then just bring them back and let the scene play out. Um, and I think we kind of did that to a certain degree. We were trying to force it and then we stepped back and kind of broke it down to its basics and it, and it worked quite quite well. But I definitely learned a lesson that doing too much work on a scene um, can have a very negative impact. Um, you mentioned you like actors with a physical duality. Yeah. What does that mean? Um, I suppose it's, I suppose most actors are chameleons to a certain degree, but I, I love, I suppose actors love it as well to do something quite transformative, um, where you can sort of really get across two sides to a personality and maybe even back that up physically as well um i guess all really interesting characters have a lot of light and shade so to try to find actors that can tap into that light and shade and really revel in it i think is is something that i love to do and um some of my favorite actors i think are are ones that swing from being you know uh characters that are quite dark and maybe even a bit malevolent to being able to play you know paragons of light um maybe not in the same film or sometimes in the same film but that that sort of duality always really interests me as as a viewer and as a director um <laughs> uh, you've answered it's, it's great because you've answered like 10 questions um, I skipped ahead uh, Kate Grohl uh, where does the idea for that come from? Um, so myself and Matt had we were just um, in the process of finishing well myself and Matt had finished working on Volkswagen Joe and myself Eamon and Anna were in the process of, of finishing it off and there was an upcoming um, the next um, funding scheme with the film board was an Irish language one which was the Garrison on one um, and myself and Matt had chatted about a couple of different projects and I think even at that stage we might have put one or two in with Filmbase um, but my own thinking was the next step career wise was to do something with the film board um, having done Volkswagen Joe outside the film board I was like it, I felt it was important to start to build a relationship with them so um, the Gearskin on funding scheme came along and myself and Matt had chatted about a couple of projects and he had one um, an idea he'd had about these two um, kids 
in search of their first crush. And um, it was semi-autobiographical mm-hmm. in that it was about Matt and his twin brother growing up in Tip and Matt's twin brother Frank is gay. So that was kind of the angle that we were looking, That that's kind of where it started from. And myself and Matt then started working quite hard on the script and reshaping it. Because um, for me, what the story was going to be about was creating a space for the audience to really feel what it was like and re-engage with that pursuit of your first crush um, and that dizzy excitement that you had. And to do that for the two boys in, this, in the story where you're following their kind of journey and then realizing at the end that one of them was, uh, his first crush was a girl and one was a boy. But at that point, you then it didn't matter. You felt the same way for the two kids, and that that's kind of what I was going for. Whether we pull that off or not, I'm not sure. Um, but we yeah, so we submitted the the script to the film board, um, and I was very lucky that one of my friends is uh, is from the Goyaltucht, uh, Altanoe. So he was good enough to translate the script because myself and Matt's Irish language is abysmal, um, and. He translated for us and we got shortlisted and we went in and we, we went through the interview process and the film board really liked it and they really liked Brokeside and Joe and we ended up getting the gig but one of the things that they, one of their stipulations was that we get it re, um, retranslated by somebody who's written for film before, um, which was fine. Um, so... Uh, um, so then I obviously had to find someone who, who fitted that category and I was very lucky that a friend of a friend, uh, Owen Miguel Vida, um, ended up doing me a massive favour and working on the script for me and I learned a huge amount about Irish as well and just how many idioms and things like that we had in the script that don't translate um, and Owen was brilliant at kind of helping me find ways around that. Um, like there's a great line in the film where one of the boys has kind of failed at his attempts to get the girl which I'm not sure he really wanted anyway but he he comes outside and the older brother says oh you know don't worry about it there's plenty of fish in the sea and the kid says I don't like fish and clearly he's referring to girls um, but the translation in Irish is there's many salmon in the river that hasn't been caught so we were we really thought about that for quite a while that it needed to work in English and in Irish, um, and it wasn't always directly translatable. So I think in the end we said, we kind of did a combination of of them both. I think we said there's many. Did we do in the end? But it was just it was just that you need to be aware that things don't always translate that well, um, and we were in a weird position where we were working from English back to Irish where I think a lot of times with Irish projects, generally in Ireland, people who are making them are fluent in Irish and they're thinking in Irish. Um, and then to put, sort of protect myself when we were making the film, everybody we cast um, was fluent in Irish. And I had a very good um, Irish speaker who was my script supervisor, who'd worked on Ross and Rune and things like that in the past. So I was quite well protected, I, I think anyway. And even though I knew what everybody was saying, um, it is very tricky to, <laughs> to direct in a language that you don't speak fluently because even in the edit, I've, I've figured out in a couple of places, the sort of intonation or, um, or even the emphasis was on slightly the wrong word. <laughs> um, 
but they were only really small things. Um, but it did actually give myself and Amy a really interesting opportunity as well because we cut the film just visually. We cut the film not exactly knowing what everybody was saying originally um, or our first cut. And then when we subtitled it, uh, we discovered that we'd actually missed a couple of lines. But we'd, we'd also accentuated some of the comedy in a way that we may have missed if we were just looking at it purely from a language mm-hmm. point of view. Um, and those two kids, the, the two little, the two boys, um, what was it about them that... Um, it was funny because we, we, we'd worked with Louise Kiley and uh, Thursa King on the whole casting process and one of the reasons we went to them is, is they had done a lot of stuff with, with kids and they were just brilliant to work with and we looked at a lot of kids and a lot of different boys and at the start I was genuinely really worried about what sort of possibilities I'd have, how many kids I'd be able to find, especially in Dublin, um, that would be fluent in Irish and, and be, you know, very, very much able to, to act and, and to do it in kind of a naturalistic way. Uh, and we were so lucky, there was about, there was about eight kids uh, from the boys who were all really good. Um, and I had a good think about it and I, I made notes during the auditions and we, we got to play around with things quite a bit. And then I paired them up, thinking about who would work best with who. And we brought them all back in again and we, and we did some more work um, and kind of uh, ad-libbed some stuff as well. Um, and yeah, it was funny because there was, I don't know, different kids just had different characteristics that worked really well. Um, and Tyg and Brandon just both sort of stood out in different ways. Um, they just seem to have that sort of natural ability to inhabit these characters, but also they were quite savvy, you know, from a technical point of view. Um, and actually when we were doing the shoot, it was funny because my um, my first AD um, had, was like, you know, they're never going to hit their marks, just so you know, <laughs> just so you're prepared. And yeah, he was right. Like a lot of times, uh, the, the kids just struggled which was fine we like myself and, and Russell we sort of had an understanding that we needed to give Russell room to um to reframe or readjust and and same with with focus which Ra uh, which Rob Flood was doing to give the lads a little bit of latitude because they were probably going to miss their marks and we needed to be able to kind of on the fly adjust and um, but it was it was a wonderful process working with the with the lads and there were one like just really gorgeous kids and um and Zena Donnelly as well was another one that we didn't have a huge amount for her to do she was just kind of she was the object of affection but you could see very clearly that she was very talented as well um and yeah I'm not surprised that the three of them are all still doing doing wonderful things and all still acting um so then the the two most recent ones are Light and Foxglove. Yeah. Um, each of those, how did they come about, or um, what what was it you wanted to do? So I suppose with um with Blight, it was again we were in the middle of finishing something, and Signatures was the, the kind of the next funding scheme after Kiaraskin on, um and the film board loved Cake Raw and were really happy with it, um, and were kind of. I suppose happy to support us to go again 
um, and we had a couple of projects that we were looking at. Um, there was one in particular, myself and Matt both quite liked, was the idea of doing some sort of a horror or doing something quite dark. Um, and we'd had an idea that we were rushing to try to get done in time for the application. Um, and we'd come up with something that was quite good. And then a couple of days before the deadline, we had pitched it to Eamon, who said, that's really like this feature film which I went and watched and unfortunately it had a very similar parallel storyline so I got Matt to watch it and then we're like okay now we need to come up with something else so in about three days we came up with another idea and uh, another script and I ended up because I was doing post on Volkswagen Joe I ended up staying up all night to do the application um, which I, I genuinely liked to have the time to do applications properly so it was all very rushed and we myself and Matt weren't usually surprised when we weren't shortlisted but we that was kind of as soon as we got rejected and Kate Graw was finished we sat down and we had a chat and we said well let's go back and look because I think we were on to something with with the two ideas that we had and we looked at the two scripts and what we liked about each of them and then we combined the elements that we liked most um, and then that started us on the road for Blight. And then over the next couple of months, we kept tipping away at it, kind of back and forth, working on the story and the script. Um, and then when Signatures came around, the next time we were well out in front. Okay. Um, just in a very... What was the, the seed of, of the idea that you really liked about like well, one of the things, uh, I'd be afraid to give away spoilers, but I suppose one of the things that Matt liked was um, he liked the idea of somebody looking at someone who was possessed um, as a conduit to the other side. So I, originally one of the ideas that we were looking at was that we'd have somebody who was... Um, involved with demology or demonology or satan or satanists or something like that and would see somebody who is possessed as a way to communicate with with hell was our thinking um, and i thought that was a really interesting idea um, and we also liked the idea of having these kind of strange outsiders sort of like the wicker man um, and i really liked the idea of um, having somebody having a young girl who is pregnant and possibly possessed um, and there was kind of hints of, of incest around it as well and it was like maybe we could play around with that idea originally that was the in for me anyway and the film that that sort of messed with our original evil plans was a film called The Last Exorcism which the girl in it is pregnant and possessed and there is this kind of back and forth about whether she's pregnant because of incest or whether it's the devil's baby kind of thing um, and those were two of the things that kind of pulled us into blight um, and then one of the other big things for me was the way horror has gone the last few years there's just been I think an overemphasis on the sort of found footage films and projects um, you know they're they're still quite effective but for me i always love the the old school horror the shining rosemary's baby um 
the exorcist, uh, the omen, they were the things that, that I wanted to kind of get back to. So Blight gave us an opportunity to write something, but also for me to shoot something in a way that sort of celebrated those films and was kind of a slightly modern hint um, stylistically, but generally we stuck to kind of the rules. Um, and myself and Russell Gleason worked quite hard to come up with a plan, shooting anamorphic lenses, um, the way it was lit, the way the camera moves, there was nothing ever going to be handheld, there was no steady cam shots, everything was always going to be on tracks or it was going to be locked off. Um, and it was, it was tricky because, especially for action sequences, it's much easier to shoot action sequences handheld than it is to shoot them static. Um, Why is that? Is that it's just, uh, God, uh, there is a reason. Um, there's a couple of reasons. Uh, one is if you're doing any sort of effect shots, if you're shooting handheld, generally you move on and off the effect shot quite quickly. Um, you can create energy much faster by shooting a handheld. Um, there is, if you go into film theory and you break down um, scenes and film into core elements of lines, we'll say. So the majority of, of uh, films, you're going to end up with, within your frame, you're going to end up with horizontal and vertical lines. And generally, for some reason, um, horizontal lines are the least dynamic and then vertical and then the most dynamic are diagonal. And if you transition between something that's got a lot of vertical lines and then horizontal lines and then diagonal lines, you get you build quite a visual dynamic. Um, and if you look at something like Touch of Evil, there's, it's just that film's a masterclass in in how you go about doing that. And if you're shooting something handheld, if you think about the horizon at the bottom of the, of the, of the film, of the frame, sorry, it's horizontal. But as the camera shifts, that horizontal becomes diagonal as the camera moves. Um, and it just builds a dynamic energy straight away um, that can help build tension or emotion or, um, or just excitement on a subconscious level as well as a conscious level. So when you do shoot handheld, it does make creating that energy easier, I think. Um, but yeah, so I had decided and that I was going to shoot it as if we were shooting Rosemary's Baby or, or something like that. Um, and it was, it, was, it was brilliant. It was a really good exercise. And the only cheat that we did have is that we used um, a tilt and shift lens, actually it's a system called a lens baby, and that allows us to mess with the focus. Um, and I think for the point of view of the demon, was the only time we use it, but it just helped give it a little bit more of a dynamic look. So say control then, the, the web series you did yeah. for, um, for the RTE... Uh, Storyland. Storyland. That that's completely in contrast then to in terms of what you're talking about with light, is it? Well, no, we actually we took a, a similar um plan with that. I was working with a, a really good DOP, Richie Donnelly, um, and what I wanted to kind of tap into there was the kind of seventies kind of spy movies. Okay. 
and the idea of being watched and things like that which is something that's in Volkswagen Joe a little bit but we used a lot of really long lens um, stuff a lot of kind of telephoto things and not that we oh we didn't actually we didn't really shoot much handheld but what we did was we kept the 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 camera movement alive by having it on tripods but with a long lens so you had a bit of stability and yet the camera lens was always moving so it, it does feel quite um handheld but in fact it is actually it's locked off but being kept alive i guess by movement as it's being shot um and that series control um how was the uh, so that that was a funny one because Matt had already started talking to RTE about it and he was working with uh, John Wallace from Black Sheep uh, Black Sheep Productions um, and they had applied they had gone and had a chat with RTE and RTE said we do, we really like it and we think you should put it in for Storyland um, so at that point when Storyland was coming around uh, the lads had gotten on to me and said, I'd be interested in coming on board to direct it. Um, and I said, I absolutely would. So then I again, myself and Matt worked really hard on the scripts. And it did change quite significantly from what it was when I came on board to what we ended up shooting. And probably the trickiest part was trying to create four episodes that were all going to be seven or eight minutes long. And having a beginning, a middle and an end. And creating tension and sustaining tension through those episodes which was quite tricky um, but I, I think Matt had just had the idea like I think it was, we were kind of ahead of our time actually in that since then there's been a couple of TV shows that have gone down this route I think you've got CSI Cyber which is which is terrible but there's also a wonderful TV show called Mr. Robot and uh, we did touch on some of the things that they touched on really well um, where there was clearly a niche there for someone to fill and we'd kind of hoped that RT might get on board and do that. Uh, but after after we finished Storyland, we went in, we had a chat with them and they just said, look, we, we think it's great, we, we, we love the show, um, but there's just no money for us to commission anything on Network 2 at the moment. So it kind of felt like a bit of an opportunity lost, but in another way it was great because I got to work with with Jane and David from Morty Drama and I got to work with, with John Wallace from Black Sheep and um, myself and Matt got to work on another project together and I got to work with some wonderful actors as well um, especially Elvin Fionn and uh, Matthew O'Brien in my leads um, <clears throat> but yeah it was a really positive experience uh, it's a bit strange though because my company didn't produce it so once it was finished it kind of didn't really go anywhere after that, I guess. Um, the plan, I think, from John's point of view, and, and maybe my, and, and from Matt and from myself, I guess, was to get a foothold in RTE, which we did. But then it was kind of sad that there was nowhere else for it to go after that. There wasn't really a festival runaround thing because it was a web series. Mm -hmm. um, and everybody worked so hard for it, and I was really happy with how it turned out. Um, especially like even the post because like, we've done a lot of effect stuff um, so I, I would have loved to, for more people to have seen it um, but it was yeah it was, a, it was a great experience and it was the first time I've pro done proper kind of multi-cam shooting as well 
which is how TV works. You know, you're always shooting two cameras or three cameras. Mm -hmm. So it was the first time that I I'd shot two cameras and, and that is a slightly different mindset. I have shot two cameras on stuff before. We shot a little bit of blight, but it was out of necessity. Um, when we were running low on time, I was able to get two options with things, usually a close up and a wide, where usually with single camera uh, drama, your lighting per setup. You just have a bit more control. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, so it was a great experience and, and I got to show, I guess, that I could I could direct and shoot stuff for television. Um, and like just looking at everything, uh, it, it, each piece of work is so different. Yeah. Um, is, is that kind of diversity across John or something that you actively seek out? I think so. Uh, I like the idea. I kind of think that if you're a director and you're good at what you do, it shouldn't matter what you're directing and mm -hmm. um, what genre it fits into or what, or what type of film. Um, and I believe strongly that you should always map your visuals onto your story. And that there needs to be a very strong connection with how and why you shoot something a certain way as that that helps tell the story that you're trying to tell with which are you know same with your production design and with your costume design and with your props and with your actors and all the elements need to be working together and uh, so i do tend to give myself very strict rules about how i shoot things um, and i think by doing that I end up making things that can look and feel quite different from one another. Um, but whenever I do that, I feel I learn a huge amount. And I'm always desperate to keep learning and improving. And I think the more I push myself outside of that comfort zone and, you know, put certain limitations and um, strict rules about things, you're forced to kind of be more creative and, and to think outside the box. Um, and I think it's... I think Orson Welles had a great quote um, just about filmmaking in general. I think he said that the absence of limitations is the enemy of art. Um, and I think that's very true in filmmaking because you can shoot something anyway. I mean, you're not limited with how you shoot something or why you shoot something unless you can create those limits yourself. And I think by creating those limits, you give yourself a style and a look that can be very specific to a film or it can be very specific to a filmmaker I like the idea that you could look at my stuff and not know it was all shot you know by me or directed by me um, and I, I think I like the idea of being a bit of a chameleon as a director as much as I like actors who I think are chameleons as well um, so yeah I, I, I like the idea of, of not being specifically attached to a genre or type of film but that's probably not a good plan from a career point of view uh, and I've kind of been told that that you know agents and funders and broadcasters and studios they like to pigeonhole people because it makes you kind of a safer bet so they you know they like to employ directors who are horror directors to shoot horrors and they like to do, you know, 
costume drama they've got a costume drama guy um, and I really like the idea of not sitting in any of those categories that I could kind of throw my hand to everything or anything um, I'm not sure whether that's true but that's the mentality that I have and probably one of the people that I would look up to the most um, who was a master of that was, was Stanley Kubrick who not only hopped genres like a madman but has the definitive film in four or five different genres where you know you've got the shining you which is i would say the definitive horror space 2001 definitive sci-fi dr strangelove i would say probably definitive satirical comedy um full metal jacket you know he's just incredible but to me you know you wouldn't say stanley kubrick should only do you know period drama or should only do you know war films and and um that's certainly how i feel i, I like lots of different types of films so they're the i'd like to make lots of different types of films uh, and certainly it's good to see that that spirit is still alive and i think lenny abramson is somebody who i look up to a lot who kind of seems to maybe not as in such an extreme way but he makes different types of films that seem to interest him in different ways um, and they're not all the same type of film um, which kind of gives me hope that maybe there's a niche out there that I can I can fit into as well or create a new niche yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, then just aspects of the job that come less easy to you or that you have found most challenging um god that's funny actually uh it's like an interview where you're like what so what are your what are your weaknesses, are your weaknesses? <laughs> i have no weaknesses <laughs> um i suppose i'm sure people say in interviews all the time but like um i definitely am a bit of a perfectionist and that can lead me to micromanaging things probably too much um or maybe sometimes my time would have been better used handing things off but I, i'm definitely getting better at that um, I think post-production is something that a lot of directors struggle with um, just because by the time you get there you're exhausted and you've kind of put everything into the shoot you've put everything into the edit you're usually under time pressure and you start to make compromises that you shouldn't um, and I think I've probably gotten better at, at st finishing strongly I think with projects um, and probably learning a lot about composing and, and working with composers and, and music and things like that as well because uh, again there, there's something there's just another level that you can add to your projects in post-production if you work with the right people and you you stay on track um, and sound like sound is another one that's just so important and when it's done right it's just it's, it's incredibly powerful tool um, and it's something that you really only learn by doing, especially if you're a director. Because um, I, I was over at the, the Berlinale um, Talent this year and they had this wonderful lineup of different talks and things like that. Um, but one of the things they had, they had two very specific technical workshops, one for composers and one for editors, uh, three actually, one for editors and one for directors of photography. And they were only for directors of photography, editors and composers. I remember finding it very frustrating because I was like, this is exactly the sort of stuff directors should be doing. 
that you get a much better understanding of what the possibilities are for composing and what the possibilities are for editing and what the possibilities are technically for, for shooting. Because as a director, you need to be able to do and understand all those things. Maybe not, you don't need to be able to be at the same level as a director of photography, but you need to understand how the cameras work, how the lenses work, how filters work, how lighting works. Otherwise, you're handing that off to somebody else um, and they may do it exactly the way you know you envisioned or they may not and it's just another variable that you're losing control over um, and it's the same with production design I mean you need to understand how that works and what are what's possible and what's possible with the budgets you have um, and the same with costume design I mean you talk to costume designers and like they're, they're, they're just amazing as well at what they do but you know that you're not just trying to make outfits you're trying to tell the story with costumes and i think once you get into that mentality for everything um that's when you'll end up making really good projects if everybody is trying to tell the story using you know props or using production design or using costumes and using music and using sound and using you know the color grade and effect shots and you just need to understand and and be able to access all of those things in order to do your job. At least I think you do anyway. Um, you've mentioned Berlin by any of by by how do I say that? <laughs> uh, Berlin, Berlin Al. Berlin Al. What uh, is Berlin it? Alley. I'm not sure. It depends who you ask. Um, what is it? Um. So the Berlin Al is the is the kind of official name for the Berlin Film Festival. Okay. Um, and that takes place in, in February every year for about two weeks. Uh, and a good few years ago, they started um, to create a sub part of that festival mm-hmm. where they opened their doors to bringing in sort of the best talent in their various film disciplines and bringing them to Berlin during the festival and bringing um, masters of their various fields um, and combining those up and coming uh, talents with film professionals in order to help them progress and, um, and move up to the next level. So it's, it's a very supportive, wonderful idea. Um, and you also get a fantastic opportunity to meet other filmmakers from around the world who are in the same place you are um, and see their work and, and make new relationships. And one of the big things that you learn is that, especially at the moment, the film board are, are you know, they're just doing miracles with what is a tiny, tiny budget. Um, and there's only so far they can stretch it. So we have to look to Europe and, and to the States to help increase our budgets and to be able to realize projects and, and take them from ideas and actually make them a practical possibility. So Europe is just this amazing place where there's so many different countries and there's different film boards and regional film boards and um, there's just loads of creative, amazing people there. So the Berlin Elm, it's the same with Cannes or with Venice or with some or San Sebastian, like it's just an opportunity to meet really, really amazing filmmakers and, and build 
potentially new collaborative uh, relationships and um, I've been very lucky that I, I met some amazing people in Berlin and I've already started to work on what will hopefully be my first feature film with a, a writer from Poland, uh, Victor, and we've just tentatively put in our first application for funding with the Polish Film Institute and I'm hoping to apply with the Irish Film Board for development funding to write um, write the script with Victor. And that um, that project or the, the, the confidence to go for that project, if you like, did that come directly out of the experience of going to Berlin? Uh, yeah, um, I suppose in a way it, it definitely opens your eyes to what's going on in Europe and you do realise that there is a lot more money and there's a lot of very good support um, in Europe for filmmakers mm-hmm. um, and you just need to, to tap into it because it, it can be hugely beneficial. So yeah, I would say that like when I was at um, Berlin, I was chatting to, to Callie McGuinness, who's the, the lead programmer for Shorts for Toronto, and she also does docs for um, short docs for hot docs and for Sundance. Um, and we were chatting and she was saying that the Toronto Film Festival was looking to create something like the, the Berlin talent or the Berlin Al talent. Um, and they were looking to, to, to build a new sort of talent scheme that they would support. And she turned to me and she said, but sure, there's no point in you doing it because you've already got into the most prestigious talent um, program in the world. And I was kind of going, I didn't, I didn't realise that's what this was. <laughs> um, I just, I was like, this is amazing. I get to go to Berlin. So even while I was there, I was, I was figuring out what it was I was lucky enough to be a part of. And one of the really nice things about it is that it doesn't end once you leave or once you finish your, your week and a bit there. Um, the festival continues to support you as a filmmaker. Um, and there are, and even next year, myself and Victor are hoping to go back with the project that we're working on at the moment. We're going to apply for what's called a script station, which is an intensive um, sort of week of workshopping your script with script editors um, and there's also um, a co-production market specifically for um, people who've come through the talent system uh, and you're also now part of a database of, of amazing filmmakers um, actors uh, technicians who are all Berlin Alley alumni and there's there's a portal through Berlin Alley talent website where you can contact all of these people. Um, so if you are looking to make connections in different countries, you've got a nice little avenue to take your first steps. You can contact people from different countries who've been alumni and ask them just questions about working with people. One of the really nice things somebody said to me um, at the festival when we were chatting about working with different people and working with sales agents and things like that. And she said that every time you meet someone, you start to write the book about who they are. Uh, and she actually means physically that you take their card and you put it in a book and you make notes about kind of who they are and, and you start to do a bit of research because you're going to be building relationships with people and you want to try your best to safeguard yourself about making mistakes. 
Uh, and one of the really good things she was saying to do, which we do in Ireland all the time, is if you're looking to work with someone you haven't worked with before, then you contact somebody who has worked with them that you know, and you ask questions about how they like to work. I certainly, um, I would definitely do it with crew and things like that. If there's someone I haven't worked with before, if there's somebody I can check in with um, to see how they work or if there was any sort of backstory I should be aware of. And you can kind of do the same um, with the connections that, that I've been lucky to make in, in Berlinale. So if we'd say I was working, I was looking to work with a company from Finland on a co-production. I have three or four people in Finland who work in different areas of the industry who I could ring and say, have you worked with these guys before? Are they nice to work with? You know, has there been any issues in the past? Because the last thing you want to do is discover somebody is a nightmare to work with when you're already sort of in bed with them, I guess. Um, so um, what was the, I mean, it, it does sound amazing, but for you, what was the, the most, what did you gain most from, from being there or what did you take um, away or? It's funny because uh, about three or four days into it, I was going to see as many talks as possible and I was trying to meet as many people as possible. And I, I was looking around and I was kind of going, are the other people doing this better than I am? Are they doing a better job of being part of this program and getting more out of it? Um, but then just over a couple of days, everything kind of changed. I just suddenly started meeting people that could potentially be, you know, collaborators on future projects and I was lucky enough to meet up with Victor and we chatted about a few different projects and about his projects and stuff I'd done in the past and I met a wonderful director from the States who's Irish and who's looking to possibly shoot some stuff in Ireland and I met a fantastic Swiss producer that we're chatting to about doing an Irish Swiss co-production and it was just suddenly it all kind of kicked off and and then I, I got to meet some some really good people from the industry as well uh, even just briefly I, I met some very good DOPs and I met a couple of good directors that, that I'm quite impressed with and um, I think probably the, the biggest benefit to it is is the, it sounds sort of crass when you say it, but it, it is the kind of the networking it's just the people that you meet uh, and the possible the possibility of what, what those relationships could end up being um, I wasn't kind of going there with a specific agenda, although when I did go there, I didn't have a project, and now I do. So I suppose I was looking to see what I was very much open to see what I could get out, what what I could get out of it, or, or what what come about from it. But um, really, I just wanted to go and enjoy it and, and just learn as much as possible and meet as many people as possible because I think I'm a very curious person anyway. So just the opportunity to talk to hundred people over a few days like yeah. even just going for breakfast in the morning if we always said breakfast was in the same room and you just arrive and you'd sit down with someone and you'd have a chat uh, and they could be you know an Israeli director or a Finnish composer or you know a British um, DOP and you just learn from all of them something about them and about how they work and what they do um. And the, the jump then, or is it a jump from working on shorts to going to a feature? Is that felt quite natural? Or um, it's funny because yeah, I think mentally before Volkswagen Joe, I thought there was a big jump, 
Um, but after doing Volkswagen Joe, which ended up being 30 minutes long and very much feeling and looking like a feature film, I don't think there is really. It's more a stamina thing and just um, there's just more planning. But considering how much work I put into short films, I, I could just as easily be putting that work into features, I, I think. Um, and a couple of people have said that to me, that you should be looking at features because you're you're killing yourself um, to make shorts, which are, are really good. Um, but from a progression point of view and from a financial point of view, you're probably better off stepping up sooner rather than later. But um, I kind of had a progression in my head that, that I think has worked out quite well, which was make a short film, which was Volkswagen Joe, then make a film board short film, which I did, then make a film board signature short film, which I did. I also got to make a web series on RTE, um, and then I got to finally make a film base, an RTE short film as well. Um, so I do feel I'm more than ready to step up to, to making a feature. Um, so I don't think there's a big transition there. Um, I think it's it's generally the same the same thing you're going to be working the same way you just have to be aware that it's going to take longer to shoot and it'll involve more prep um all of your work so far has has won awards um which is lovely but the practical value of of winning awards um it's always good to get recognition for what you do Mm -hmm. Um, and weirdly what I normally feel my first instinctual sort of reaction anytime I've won an award is a relief um, maybe it changes after you've picked up a couple of awards for a project but because you've put so much work into it you've sacrificed so much to make it and the people around you have sacrificed so much and put so much work into it like um, Blight was just such a massive undertaking, especially, um, you know, we, we stretched our budget like a, a you know, like a water balloon, um, Anna and Eamon pulled off miracles in order to get all the things that I was looking for to do. And we had such a great team of crew and cast who all really worked so hard. Um, and you know, they approached it as if it was a feature film, um, and to just have their work validated as much as mine, it, it just really was a relief that, you know, that they would gain something out of it as much as, as much as I would. And, and that, you know, that we had made something that was kind of worthy, I suppose. Um, but practically they're, you know, they're, I suppose, oh God, I, I'm not sure how useful they are. It's, it's good to have awards. <laughs> And to be able to say stuff like, you know, it's an award-winning short film or a multi-award-winning short film is always helpful. Um, but I, I think the your films are... You never know how well your film is going to do, I guess. Um, film making, film viewing is very subjective. And what juries are looking for depends on, on the festival. So uh, you just don't know um, if something is going to win as many awards or it's going to win awards that you think it will or it could be ignored altogether. So I think you need to be a bit grounded about it um, and be making the project for the project's sake 
And usually what I find frustrating is when it doesn't get into as many festivals as I would like because as a filmmaker, you just want people to see the work. And you ran, you ran into that difficulty with Volkswagen Joe because of the length. Yeah. Um, and yet, it couldn't have been shorter, really. No, and it's it's funny because I I'm, I don't really find it. I I'm never frustrated with the with the film. Um, the play was about forty pages long, um, and the I can't remember how long the script was. It was in around twenty two, I think, or twenty three, and the film ended up being thirty minutes long, which is on the line for short film. Um, so yeah, I discovered talking to festivals that we'd gotten into and talking to some that we didn't and getting a bit of feedback that yeah selectors were picking it and and um programmers were axing it because they couldn't put it in a shorts program if, if a shorts program was 60 or 70 minutes long and it's 30 minutes it could be three or four films instead of six or seven so um i i just that's something we just had to accept um there's nothing you could do about it and and even now people say you know if could you not have you know made it 15 minutes long and it probably would have done really well and i was like i think the most i could probably take out of it still is only about a minute or two <laughs> so i mean 30 minutes and 28 minutes is exactly the same so um i do totally agree that i the film needed to be the length it was um, and the most uh, common complaint of people who saw it was that it was 60 minutes too short so that's a lovely thing for people to say that they just felt completely absorbed by the story and it was of a length where they were completely engrossed and then and then unfortunately it ends um, where they'd like to have stayed watching it for another for another hour or half. Um, and have you have you learned that your work has a more natural home in certain festivals? Well, this is the third year now I've been doing film submissions for, for festivals and I think every year I've learned I've learned quite a bit about how you submit and where you submit to and things like that. And definitely I learned a huge amount in Berlin about film festivals because I got to chat to the head programmer for shorts for Uberhausen, the Berlin Alley, Toronto and Sundance and previously I've met a couple of other programs as well um, and just had chats with them and certain festivals like certain types of films and certain programmers um, and European short film generally it's a bit of a, a bit of a sweeping statement but a lot of the festivals they, they, they're not looking for strong narratives and they're not looking for more straightforward stories um, a lot of times they're they're looking for projects that border on experimental or quite abstract and don't necessarily have to have a strong narrative um, and they're looking for projects that are playful and experimental and not you know not governed by any strong rules about about um, story and, and characters and things like that uh, and the problem is is that you're you're just throwing away money sending your film to festivals where it doesn't belong and sometimes it's very hard because you're like oh this festival is very prestigious it'd be great to get in but you've never been to the festival you don't know anyone who's been to the festival and you may not have seen any films that have screened there um 
so how are you supposed to know that your film doesn't fit? Uh, and I did get to go see a good few of the shorts programs in Berlin and nothing I've ever made would fit in any of those uh, of those um, short screenings, uh, which was great because I was like, there's no point in pursuing that. Um, it's a bit late now for me to learn that I've spent 50 or 60 quid over the last, you know, 50, 60 euros a pop submitting to the Berlin Film Festival where, you know, I had no chance of getting in. Uh, plus they want an international premiere. Um, and in the past, I wouldn't have had one. And this year I did have one, but there was a bit of a mix up. But it wouldn't have mattered. I just don't think Blight fitted in Berlin. Um, and that was something that was quite good to learn. It was a bit late. And it would be the same with something like Uberhausen. And I think maybe that's something the film board should look at is that Irish films tend to do very well in Europe and I think, or sorry, very well in North America. And I think that's because we have a bit of a foothold on, on both sides. We have that sort of American mentality and some of that European mentality. And it makes our stuff stand out quite a bit in the States, but not stand out as much as some of the other European films that, that don't do successful in the States, that are a bit too abstract for, for US and Canadian audiences. Um, so yeah, I think it is very much about knowing where your film belongs. And that's a really good lesson to have as I'm embarking on what will be my first feature film. And TW Films is in the process of working on its first feature film, which won't be mine, which is a film called Highway that we're looking to make uh, with Alex McGuinness. And it's about realizing what the opportunities are for that film and where it would be best to premiere it in Europe and in the States and what festivals does it fit. And that's something people think about a lot with feature films. And I just think that mentality needs to shift into short film as well, okay. where you look at where you should have your international premiere, and where your film probably belongs, as opposed to trying to force a, you know, a, a circle or peg into a square hole. Um. Turning points, significant turning points along the way. Um, you might need to give me more. <laughs> um, in terms of as career or projects yeah, or yeah, just kind of shifts that happened that were that set you. Well, I suppose the Berlinale would be one. Yeah, I, I I think there's been there's definitely been a few. Um, with different projects. I think getting projects is is probably the biggest thing. And my progression as a filmmaker the last two or three years is completely down to being able to work on projects. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the tricky thing. And I think um, learning that I work better with other people um, as regards script um, and collaborating with writers rather than getting lost writing something myself because I think that's what happens to me if, if and it's something I've asked um, Jim Sheridan and I've asked um, uh, what's really challenging about it but just about at what point do you stop being the writer and start being the director and I tend to be messing with the script while we're shooting the scene so having that little bit of distance between me and the script I think is good and having another voice um, to work with at the script stage 
um, is really helpful. Um, and I think that's something that was a massive turning point for me. And I'm more than happy to be um, a director of other people's scripts. Okay. Because I have a very good understanding of script generally and writing that I'm, I'm able to kind of work with the writer to reshape it so it's something that works for me and for them. Um, so the new feature film is a bit of a departure where it's my idea and it's something that's been sort of crawled into my brain and haunted me for a long time um, and I'm sort of leading the project from a writing point of view but I still really like the idea that I have somebody to work with on it and we can hopefully push each other creatively um, and just help me get out of my own head a bit when it comes to the writing. Um, were there big disappointments that actually in hindsight turned out to have been not quite the disappointment you thought they were? Um, God, um, I tend to not to dwell on the disappointments too much. Um, I, I just don't think it's very helpful. Uh, I think you should always be looking forward to the next project. Um, I was lucky enough to do a bit of rally driving in Waterford um, a couple of years ago with my girlfriend Dee and uh, one of the gems of wisdom that came from that, from our, our um, the person who was teaching us, he said that when you go through a difficult corner and if you don't quite get it right, you need to forget about it and start thinking about the next corner because if you're dwelling on the corner you've just gone through, you're not going to take the next one properly. So while you can learn an awful amount when you're working on projects, I think you need to just let them go and then okay. start moving on to the next one. Um, advice to your younger self? Oh, wow. Um, God. Um, I don't know. I think probably between 2008 and 2012, um, I put a lot of work and time and energy into sort of corporate projects. Um, and I it, like it worked out well for me in that I got to stay in Cork and I got to make a living um, and myself and Eamon have a very good creative relationship uh, who's in TW Films with me that we kind of developed over that time but I was taking on too much and I think I, I recently produced a short film for um, a very good Cork young filmmaker called Lachlan McKenna and he was definitely guilty of what I was as well at the start and that's trying to do everything were not just the creative stuff but the logistical things and I think when you are a short filmmaker um, starting out you know <laughs> you, you do end up having to produce to a certain degree because if the physical things aren't there for you to shoot then you can't make the film but at the same time the more time you spend on that sort of stuff the less time you're spending working with your actors and working with your DOP and working with your production designer so um, I do think planning is something that I've learned is really, really important, but also being single-minded about what I'm doing and not letting myself get distracted, trying to do everything for everyone and just focus on my job as the director. Um, films that you love to watch or come back to? or um, It's weird because I always struggle, especially it's kind of a classic filmmaker question when or when just when people hear that you you know you're a director or you're a filmmaker they're like oh what's your favorite film and it just 
and it confuses me every time because I've just never been able to pick a definitive film. At one point, I did manage to get it down to a top ten, but I've just forgotten all of those films. Um, the Korean films of um, what is his name? Um, Park. He did um the Vengeance trilogy, which was Sympathy for Mister Vengeance, Old Boy, and Sympathy for Lady Vengeance, and those films I, I just love. Um, probably the one that's more underrated was Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, which I just think is, is an almost perfect film. It's very dark um, and just very beautiful. Um, and probably Gaspar Noe's Irreversible as well as another one that I, I would like to say I, I've only watched it once because it, it had such a profound effect to me. I haven't needed to watch it again. Because it, it it's just it's very dark, but it's it's a masterpiece I would say, um, and the images of it still kind of haunt me. Uh, it's just an incredible film, so I think any film that resonates with you long after you've seen it, um, are the sort of films that you love and are the sort of films that you you hope to make. Um, and what do you love about what you do? Oh wow. Um, there's so many there's so many hurdles you have to jump through in order to get to get to the shooting to get to production but when you are on set and you're halfway through a shoot and you are just surrounded by by so many creative people and everybody's pulling in the same direction and you're you're kind of like a composer you know or conducting sorry not a composer or a conductor of an orchestra and everything is just, you can feel the magic of what you're creating. And um, whether you're at the monitor, whether you're on set, and you're, you're just surrounded by this wonderful, warm, creative energy. Um, and you just feel so backed and by the people around you. And that everybody is working really hard to make something special. That's, that's why you do it. That's why you put up with what at times can be a very painful job. Um, there's a lot of heartache and rejection and um, it puts a lot of stress on relationships and friendships and family and financially it can be very difficult um, but it's all worth it for those moments of just sheer joy when you are getting to do what it is you think you're put on this earth to do I guess um, yeah um, thank you very much <laughs> All right.